Well, hello and welcome to our latest episode of Rethinking Trauma and Transition. And at Rethinking Trauma and Transition, we challenge the stigma surrounding trauma and the healing through our podcast. We aim to empower those who are experiencing these challenges, providing them with the knowledge and language necessary to embark on a transformative journey towards a more fulfilling life. Thank you. So this week, we were fortunate enough to have a conversation with Rachel from Child Bereavement UK. Yeah. And much as though this is uh, quite a, a heavy topic, it's conversation that's well worth listening to yes. because it's something that... Isn't talked about, isn't really understood. No. And that when that happens within our family unit and within our, our circles of experience, we can feel very adrift in how to have the conversations mm-hmm. that need to be had and, and how to support each other through that. Yeah. Support. But it's also, as well, is the language that's used by people with the child. And that yeah. child may not have the capacity to understand. And how we how we shape our conversations and what we choose to share and, and not share can have a massive impact. Yeah. And I think this is what was very clear in the conversation with Rachel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So please do enjoy this podcast as best you can. Um, hopefully you get a lot from this and definitely useful information. Hello, Rachel. Thank you for coming on to our podcast. Can you yeah, give yeah. yeah. Can you give us a bit of a background about possibly yourself, the organization that you work for and what you do, please? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm Rachel Tegg and I work for a charity called Child Bereavement UK and we support children and young people up to the age of 25 and their families when they have experienced a bereavement. And we also offer support to parents and carers and immediate family members when a child of any age has died as well. Uh, we also offer pre-bereavement support and also a huge amount of training to professionals as well. So I am a bereavement support practitioner, which means that I do a lot of face-to-face work with the families we support, both with children, young people and with adults. And I also deliver some of our training as well. One of the, the reasons we, we were particularly keen to um, talk with yourself, Rachel, and your organisation is I think that bereavement's a big, a big topic. It's a massive topic, and it's something that we all will experience at some point in our lives. And I'm also very conscious that the experience of the child versus the experience of the adult is very different. Mm. And I thought that was something that it was worth exploring with you and I know certainly Rich and I deal with with grief and all its its many variations when we're working with individuals. I suppose for us, the, the, I suppose the starting point would be what are sometimes the, the current, the, the common differences in terms of child bereavement, in terms of when that child is experiencing bereavement for that first time? Hmm. I mean, like you say, bereavement is something that at some point is going to happen to all of us and yet it's something that people tend to avoid like the plague in terms of talking about it people do not like 
talking about bereavement, possibly because it's that reality we're all going to have to face, but we don't want to. And a big consequence of not having these very open conversations about death and dying is that when it happens to us, we feel very unprepared. So as an adult, that's difficult enough. For a child, it's that much harder because particularly for very young children or children with additional needs, your emotional vocabulary is quite limited. You'll only have had a number of quite emotionally challenging experiences in your life. And bereavement for a lot of children is the first very challenging emotional situation they might come across. So I guess like many other things, it's also a bit of a learning experience. It's about learning, okay, how do I deal with this? How am I supposed to react in this situation? What feelings are normal? What are not? So for a child, this is all brand, brand new. And quite often what children do when they come across something new is they like to learn about it. They like to ask questions and they also like to look around at their peers and how their peers might be reacting to things. So for children, bereavement can be quite a lonely, quite a confusing time because when they do experience a death and they then go back to school and see everybody else acting like normal and yet inside emotionally, they're in turmoil. There's lots of confusion, lots of sadness, anger and various other emotions that go on as well. They look at everyone else and think, oh, clearly I'm the strange one. Everyone else is carrying on as normal. And yet I'm feeling like this. That can't be right. So when children, young people are bereaved, what they really need are those very open conversations with parents or with teachers, with carers to help them understand that actually the feelings that they're experiencing are completely normal for a bereaved child. And if the other people in their class had gone through something similar, they would be feeling and reacting in a very similar way. So in terms of some of the key differences between children and young people and the adult experience of a bereavement, it's all very brand new. It's all something where they, even less than an adult, know what to expect and how or more what emotions they might be experiencing and particularly the wealth of emotions that come with grief that experiencing several feelings all at once that's something that not a lot of children might have come across before how you can feel both relieved and angry and sad and guilty all at the same time and that's not only confusing in itself but when it's something you haven't experienced before it's that much more baffling and I think another key difference, particularly for children and young people, is that when a bereavement happens, they feel incredibly out of control because a lot of decisions are made around them. Sort of other family members, older family members will talk about um, funeral plans or what to do with the ashes and things like that, or what to do on birthdays and anniversaries. And for a child or a young person, it feels as though their voice is just taken away from them. They're not being asked their opinions, their thoughts or what they might feel is important for a particular occasion. So it's also a very 
silencing time for a lot of children and young people and any opportunities you can find to give them a level of control or some voice in what's going on around them is always what we say to people would be fantastic because that's what really means a lot to children and young people. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering is because we lived in a more sanitised world now in a way, everything's kind of sectioned off, hospices, hospitals, care homes. We're not as we're growing up, we're not really experiencing that what used to be extended families or families with say five, six, seven, eight people in there living in that same house. So people don't experience that death, that grief with the family as a whole unit. Mm. So I wonder if that's change the perceptions of how we grow up and how we deal with all death and grief. And I think a lot of the time it comes down to wanting to protect children, young people as well. So quite often we will get questions, particularly on our helpline around, we've just had a death in the family. How do we tell the children? Should we take the child to the funeral? Should we take them to view the body? And again, it's it's that shielding and that protecting. We think, oh, children, young people, like they shouldn't be experiencing this at their age. We want to protect them from it. But what we don't always realise is that by trying to protect them in that way, we're almost denying them an opportunity to be able to process that. So quite a lot of the time when we protect or withhold information from children, young people, what we're allowing is their imagination to fill in the gap. And quite often what they will fill that with is something worse. So if we are able, again, like I was saying before, to give children, young people choices and be able to say to them, for example, oh, if you want to go and view the body, this is exactly what you will see, hear, smell. This is what things will feel like. This is exactly what to expect. Is that something that you still want to go and do? And allowing them right up to the last second to change their mind if they want to. That's what we tend to recommend to people because quite often withholding opportunities and withholding information is what will lead to challenges down the line because people might feel they had information kept from them or they were denied opportunities that they would have wanted. So, so often when we try to protect what we're actually doing is putting up barriers in terms of trust between parent and carer and child. So, yeah, sometimes there is a lot of shielding for children and young people, but those are some of the barriers we need to start taking down so that they are able to process some of these really difficult things they're thinking and feeling. What does healthy processing look like for the child compared to an adult that you've, when you're working with these children, young people on a regular basis? How would they present? Quite often what we say is that there are men, there are as many ways to grieve as there are people in the world. Absolutely everybody will grieve differently, even within the same family, between siblings, you'll see individuals grieving in very different ways. There are various factors that affect the grieving process down to the personality of the individual, their past experiences, their supportive environment, the circumstances of the death as well. 
So how individuals process their grief looks completely different from one individual to the next. Some people might take a lot of comfort from being able to talk about their grief and being able to talk through how they're thinking and feeling about things. Some people hate talking about their thoughts and feelings and they find that can be a real barrier for them. And the way that they express their grief might be through creative things such as drawing or dance or music is a brilliant one as well. So when we talk about doing grief work or when we talk about processing, what we're essentially talking about is anything where somebody is able to spend time with those difficult thoughts and feelings rather than trying to suppress them, squash it down or put it off to one side and think, oh, I'll come back to that later. That healthy processing or that healthy grief work is sort of not only finding opportunities or finding ways of being able to spend time with these thoughts and feelings. Um, but yeah, it's it's about when you naturally feel that grief coming up, people talk very often about grief coming in waves. Um, so people will have times where they feel able to carry on with everyday life. And then they'll have moments where it feels like their grief really rears up in a particular moment. Maybe they've heard a song on the radio that reminds them of the person who died, or maybe they've even just woken up that day and they can tell, okay, this is going to be a difficult day. It's about allowing yourself to go with what comes naturally. Quite often people might think, oh, I should be grieving more or maybe I'm grieving too much or they'll try to force themselves into a place that they're not naturally feeling they should be. And quite often what we say is the healthiest kind of grief is allowing yourself to go with that very natural ebb and flow of grief. So when your grief does come up, if you're able to, allowing yourself to go with it, to sit with some of those thoughts and feelings, talk about it with someone if you want to, or find some other way of expressing your grief. And then when it feels like the right time to move back to doing everyday things and being able to carry on with what you were doing before, being able to go with that. So not trying to force yourself into grief or force yourself into feeling as though everything's normal and you can carry on with everyday things, but just being able to go with that shift and change. What I was really interested in in the conversation was there's almost like an element of masking with children, isn't there? And it's not intentional masking. It's unintentional masking because of that inability to explore their emotional landscape or not having the emotional language to explore that landscape, which can lead to an awful lot of misunderstandings because there's almost two layers of masking. There's masking that's done by the adult to protect the child, which is that distance you were talking about, the lack of sometimes involvement, almost trying to keep them separate from the experience. And then there's a the masking of the child itself, which is that not knowing how to explain or process or even understand their emotional landscape, which sometimes leads to misunderstandings of responses. Mm, and I think quite often children tend to go off what their parents show. 
So we quite often talk about parents and carers being models for their children and being able to model grief for their children. So like you say, quite often parents and carers might try to hide their own grief responses because they think, oh, I don't want my child to see me upset or I don't want them to see me struggling because I want them to think that everything's okay and keep that normality for them. But actually, what you need to do as a parent or care or anyone sort of supporting a child is be able to model for them actually what grief looks like. So if a parent or carer feels able to cry in front of their child or explain to their child about how much they're missing the person who died, what they're actually showing that child is these feelings are normal feelings. This is what you do with them. It's okay to cry. It's okay to talk. And actually, this is what you do in this situation. A bit like I was saying before with learning, children will quite often mimic what they see in a parent. So if they see their parent being able to grieve quite openly, they will feel able to do that themselves. So quite often, again, protecting a child by putting that mask on, the child is then probably going to mimic that and think that what you're supposed to do is carry on as normal. We don't talk about grief. We don't talk about granny dying. And we just carry on and we don't show some of those feelings. And you think to yourself, oh, these are strange feelings, but it's not something we show. So I have to keep it to myself. Do you think part and parcel of that is also about processing a new experiencing into our landscape of what life is all about? I'm just very conscious that sometimes for instance if I look at things like when we experience loss as a result of suicide from somebody we, we know or was it was within our circle we know that there's an exponential risk in terms of the immediate circle with that and part of that is almost that processing of that experience to almost try it on for size, that thought process, the concept, because it's not been a concept that's existed within our map of reality before. It might Mm. have been off to the side, but it's not something that's really been part of our lived experience before. And and the reason I'm I'm saying that is because as as a child, that child has no concept of death until until they experience it for the first time. That's a whole different element that they've now got to find a place for within their town mm. and it's almost like as a result they've got to look around about them and go well actually if they died that means that so could you and you Absolutely. and you, you and it brings home all of a sudden the impermanence of something which didn't exist in their reality before yeah completely and when we um talk about the ages and stages of development um usually children don't actually have that concept of death and dying until they're sort of five to seven years old and that's when they start to understand actually what death and dying mean and when they get to about eight years old that's when you start to understand the permanence of death and the fact that it is something that is universal it's something that can have to the people you care about and it's something that can happen to you as well and those are absolutely enormous concepts to try and get your head around and I mean I remember when I was about eight years old sort of lying in bed and thinking about death and what it would be like to die and how scary that was 
And I remember it was the middle of the night and I ran and woke up my mum, who was probably thoroughly unimpressed by that. Um, But yeah, those are only things that sort of come as a result of development. And quite often people will use a lot of euphemisms around death and dying. So they'll say passed away, they're in the stars, they've gone to sleep and they'll try and find any possible way they can to soften the blow, which is all well and good if you actually know what all of those things are euphemisms for. But for young children and for um, children, young people with additional needs who think in a very concrete way, those euphemisms are baffling and they will think, oh, what does it mean to pass away? Or if they have gone to sleep, then I'm going to be terrified of going to sleep because I might not wake up again. So one of the really important things is that even though a very young child might not know exactly what the words death and dying actually mean, it's important that they know what it does not mean. So it doesn't mean that person is lost and that you can go and find them. It doesn't mean that that person has gone away and it doesn't mean that they have gone to sleep in the sense that we might be used to. Again, it's a protective factor. It's something we try and do to make this easier and more understandable for children, but sometimes what it can do is confuse them that little bit more. Well, if you think... Telling, giving somebody that sense that sleep is now dangerous. Mm, yeah. Because if I go to sleep or you go to sleep, does that mean then, because that's that trying on for size, isn't it? Is Does that mean yeah. then I might not wake up or you might not wake up? Absolutely. And when we talk about the importance of having these really open, honest conversations, it's for that exact reason to avoid that confusion and to provide reassurance as well. So if you explain to a child that somebody died from an illness, you then have to add that layer of this isn't the kind of illness that we're used to, like a tummy upset or when you fall over and hurt yourself. It's a very different kind of illness called cancer or it's a very different kind of illness called a brain tumour. And being able to explain to a child, even if they are very young, that this is not like the other illnesses that they're used to. This is one where actually... The medicine wasn't able to help them, but the doctors did everything they could. So again, often when you think, oh, surely that's too much information to give a child or they might not be able to understand that. It's about really making it clear that this isn't following the scripts that they're used to. So their current worldview, this is something separate from that. Well, it gets us also more reassuring, isn't it, as well? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes things that things that people are usually scared of are things like the unknown or things that don't make a lot of sense or there aren't many answers behind it. So the more information you can give children and young people in an age appropriate way, of course, the better, because like I was saying before, it's removing that opportunity for their imagination to fill in the gaps and imagine something 10 times worse or anything like that. Whereas actually, if they're given that information, that is reassuring, even though for us as adults, it might be really upsetting for a young child. They think, oh, good, I've been trusted with that information. I know what happened. I know what to picture in my head now. 
Because it's limiting uh, what ifs, isn't it? It's removing as many of those what ifs as possible. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that people tend to worry about are those questions that don't have answers to yeah. them. And people really dread some of the questions that children come out with, those curveball questions of, oh, what happens at a cremation? Or what happens when you die? You think, oh, God, how do I answer this? Um and quite often for some of those questions, we have some golden rules, if you like. So particularly if it's a question that catches you off guard and you think, I have no idea how to answer this, a really good kind of response is to be able to say, you know, that is a brilliant question. That's a really good question. I'm really glad you asked me that. I don't know the answer right now, but let me go and find out and I'll let you know by the end of today. What that does is it lets the child know they've done the right thing in asking that question. They've been heard by the parent and they're going to get an answer later so they can go off and play and think, hooray. Um, the next one would be to be able to sort of say to them, oh, actually, what do you think that means? What do you think happens when somebody dies? What do you understand a cremation to mean? Because what that then allows you to do is gauge what the child's understanding is in that moment rather than giving them all the information at once what you can do is see okay this is what they understand so far and I can just add in a little bit and see if they're happy with that answer if they want more information I can add a little bit more and then the final one would be able to say actually I don't know the answer to that question it's a really good question and I'm glad you asked it but I don't actually know the answer. Nobody really knows the answer to that. And then what you can follow that with is being able to say to a child, not knowing the answer to that question can feel really scary or it can make you feel quite angry or quite confused. How does it make you feel? So being able to acknowledge, I don't have the answer to that question either, but then reflecting on the feelings that come with that. One of the things that I've come across is, I suppose, sometimes that misunderstanding of what's going on for a child in terms of their bereavement experience that can, I suppose, manifest in different ways and is sometimes mislabeled, whether that's a child that suddenly starts having nightmares or starts um, finding problems going to school, for instance, and maybe they have an exaggerated fear response to something else, which means that when that plays out, then they can't be away from you because they're 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 looking for reassurance from working with individuals. What I've come across in these situations is almost that sense check of what's really happening in terms of that that anxiety, that fear, that concern, that behaviour. Because sometimes it's not actually what's at the surface. Maybe it could be something as simple as that child's still struggling to process and place the concept of grief, grief and loss within mm. their arena and applying it universally and being really anxious about that, but not being able to express that anxiety. So it comes out in yeah. different ways. Yeah. And again, those are all things that can be helped by sort of modelling grief for children, young people, when they are younger, 
so that they are able to identify, oh, maybe this is something that's come as a result of that. And also encouraging those really open conversations and being able to offer some of those thoughts to a child. Um, so, oh, actually, since grandma died, have you been worrying about other people dying? I think, again, mm -hmm. some people tend to think, oh, is that going to plant a seed in their mind that they need to be worrying about these things? But actually, if you have these really open conversations, that's not then something you need to worry about because you can talk through it and you can talk about it. I think so much of it stems from fear of making things worse. And again, it's just denying a child those opportunities to understand it a little bit more, figure out how they might be feeling about it. And also a big part of it is also being able to understand why they might not be grieving for someone as much as another person in the family as well. Because in any family, you're going to have very different relationships to the person who died. The way in which they die might impact you in a different way. Your background might inform you in a different way of how to respond to this. So you also get children, young people very, feeling very guilty if they're not that upset by what's happened, but other people in the family seem to be really, really upset. And they think, oh God, what's wrong with me? And they almost go in the opposite direction and think, should I be grieving more? Um, so yeah, it can be really, really challenging. And I think this is why it's so important to have these conversations, not just at home, but elsewhere as well, about how it's okay to grieve in whatever way comes for you naturally in a sense like we were talking about before with that very natural ebb and flow just going with whatever comes up in the moment I think another thing parents and carers quite often say to us is oh they don't seem to be grieving at the moment and I don't want this to affect them in later life so we want to get support in now and quite often what we find is that if somebody isn't expressing their grief at the moment, or if someone doesn't feel ready to talk about their grief, it's because they're not in that place right now, or they don't feel able to go to that place right now. And that is absolutely fine. Quite often, when you try to force interventions or support on someone who doesn't feel that they need it or want it, it has that adverse effect of they push even harder against it. So quite often, what we say to people is, when you feel ready for that support, that's when we or your parents and carers or school will be there to offer you that support. But so often they need space and time to get to that place where they realise they want to reach out for something. I had that experience when I was growing up. So my dad died when I was about 16 years old. And I had an uncle come to me while I was doing some work out in the garden you're grieving, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? So it's like an accusation as to why am I not why am I behaving in such a manner? Yeah. I think that comes down to that expectations, isn't it, of what a grief response actually is. And it just mm. I was I was listening there that we talk about complex grief as being something different. And actually, all grief is complex. Yeah, and all grief is completely and utterly different. I think it's 
like with anything, when you really start to notice something affecting your ability to function, that's usually a good time to reach out and say, actually, I need an extra bit of help with this. Um, But a big part of why people reach out to us for support is because a lot of people might sort of give their opinions on what grief should look like or the timeline attached to grief. And they think, am I doing this normally? So what I quite often find is people tend to offer their opinions very much whenever you have a baby, whenever you have a wedding and whenever someone dies, everyone will have a very strong opinion on how things should be done. And it's, it's exactly the same with grief. People will either go down the side of, oh, it's been six months, I would have thought you'd be over this by now. Or they'll go down the line of, oh, if if I were you, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. And what it does for that person is it makes them think, oh, am I doing this wrong? Should I be grieving more or grieving less than I am at the moment? And it applies that much more additional pressure as well. So for an adult, you might be able to recognise that in other people. But for a child or a young person getting those kinds of messages can really make you think, oh gosh, I'm doing this all wrong or actually the way I'm reacting isn't normal. Whereas actually if they were to see the many different ways that people grieve and sort of how different things help other people, but also different things other people might struggle with that you're okay with, then you'd see how, quote, marks normal you actually are. That's about giving individual the space to be an individual in their experience and recognising how they process that and what they experience at any given time is unique to them. Mm, Yeah and I think quite often people will say to a child or a young person oh you must be feeling this or you must be feeling that or what every teenager despises to hear I know how you feel um or I understand and actually it's not so much about knowing how someone must be feeling and actually seeking to understand their experience because everybody's experience of grief is going to be completely different so being able to say to someone can you help me understand a bit better how you're feeling or how you're reacting to this or why you might be responding in this way or I'd really like to understand your experience a bit better it's just a tiny way you can tweak your language that helps someone feel heard and as though you're seeking to understand their experience rather than assuming that they should be feeling something and therefore feeling guilty about how you're actually reacting to it. I think that removes is incredibly powerful mm. because it allows space for that individual to experience what they're experiencing. And I, mm. I love that from that removal of judgment as well. And it means that we're acknowledging that where they are isn't something that we know about at that point in time, but we're inviting the conversation. Mm. Yeah. And again, even within families as well sort of you might see that one sibling is 
responding in one way another sibling is reacting completely differently and just taking the time to sort of say I know they might be acting like this but I've noticed that you've become really quiet recently and I just want to sort of understand a little bit better and also I think the other thing that people make a lot of assumptions about is what support an individual might need and again if we think back to when I was talking about giving children and young people as much control and as much of a voice as possible, another thing they really appreciate is being asked what kind of support they want, because it might not be something like what we offer at Child Bereavement UK. They might absolutely despise the thought of having a person to go and talk to or having a stranger to talk to. And actually, the kind of support they might want might be something like joining a football club or, I don't know, going out for a walk every Sunday. It could be absolutely anything. So actually being able to say to someone, I've noticed you've been really struggling recently and I just want to know what support you'd find really helpful, whether that's a club or something to do or someone to speak to. What would it be for you? What would it what would you find really helpful? I think that's what we quite often find in schools as well. Children will be given timeout cards or they'll be told, oh, you can go to the quiet room or this or that. And actually what can be most helpful is just saying to a child in school, what could we do that would be most helpful for you? If you were to imagine the best thing we could do to help you, what would it be? And how can we work together to get as close to that as possible? Yeah. I think that, Rachel, that leads nicely on to that um, triangle you're on about, weren't you, with the base mm. and then it goes up in various stages? Yeah, yeah. So that's um, something in the NICE guidelines, uh, which is a pyramid of support. And what it basically says, there are three different levels to this pyramid. At the bottom, you have most. So most people will be able to get the support they need in their bereavement from their existing support networks. So friends, family, uh, school, work, whatever it might be, those existing supportive systems they have around them should be able to give them all of the support they need in the here and now. The next step up that pyramid is the sum. And some people might need that extra bit of support. And that's where organisations like ours, like Child Bereavement UK, would come in, where they just need maybe one-to-one -one support or group support, just an added layer to go around that. And then right at the top, you have the few. So there will be a few people where actually they might need specialist support. So it could be trauma support if you've had quite a traumatic experience could be psychological or therapeutic support or going to see a counsellor, but that's what you'd have right at the top. So I think what that goes to show is actually the importance of educating people as much as possible about how important a role they play for someone in terms of their support. Because if you think about it, a lot of the people who can really make the most difference are the friends and family, the work colleagues, the school peers, the teachers, everyone who has 
that day-to-day contact with an individual, just tiny little things they do can make a difference for that person to help them feel heard and recognised and that someone, again, is wanting to understand what they're going through and wanting to know more about what they can do to be supportive. Hmm. So I was wondering then, is, as you mentioned, of the organisation, the support that that provides to people, somebody calls your line or sends an inquiry into your organisation, what does that support or how's that initial contact like? What would that be like for them? So, yeah, if, if anyone would even just like to talk through their bereavement, what they can do is they can give our helpline a call. It's open Monday to Friday, nine till five, or they can pop onto our website just if they want a bit of information and guidance on their bereavement. And they can also speak to someone about whether or not our support is suitable for them, because what we offer is specialist bereavement support. So if they needed something like counselling or trauma support, we'd be able to signpost them to organisations that might be able to support with that. If a family do make a referral for our support, we'd be able to offer a real range of different types of support. So we have... um, one-to-one where we would be able to just have that one-to-one support with someone we have family support where we would be able to see the family all together for sessions uh couples support and that could either be parenting support so helping that couple to see how they might be able to support their bereaved child at home or it might be couple support in terms of they might be a couple who have been bereaved of their child and we can support them in that way And then we have our support groups. So we have a real range of support groups. We have a group for bereaved parents and we have several groups for young people at different ages and stages. So we have a 7 to 11 group, an 11 to 17 group and an 18 to 25 group for young people as well. And then we also have our Days to Remember, which are face-to-face events where Families can come together and actually meet other bereaved children, other parents supporting a bereaved child, and they have those opportunities to meet people where it's okay to talk about the person who died, it's okay to share your experiences, and it's also just nice for them to know that they're around people who somewhat understand and have experienced something similar to what they have. And it's just nice to know that you're around peers, for want of a better word, because like I was saying before, that's something that children and young people don't see a lot of at school. They don't see people who have experienced something similar to them and therefore might not fully understand why they might be responding in the way they are to a bereavement. Well, I think most people's first encounters with death is... The proverbial goldfish or the family pet isn't it mm, yeah yeah absolutely and it's it's around the age of sort of three to five years old that children start to get an awareness of death so like you say family pets or they might start to notice dead insects or a dead animal at the side of the road and they start to sort of take these little pieces and start to get that awareness and that understanding, yeah. What I'm wondering is, obviously death is a death, 
but is there a difference when one of the parents has been away in a foreign country, say, and that child has no idea or no knowledge, and there's that kind of separation between the body coming back home and then the child going, okay, I'm never going to see this person again? Like I was saying before, there are so there are different factors that can affect the grieving process. So every death will be very different to one another. And if we take the circumstances of the death factor, you can't really say that one circumstance is harder or easier than another. What you can say is that it will be different from one another. So one of the old debates, if you like, is whether a death that is expected is easier or harder than a sudden unexpected death. And I don't think you could say that one is harder or easier than another. They are just very different. They will bring their own complications and their own challenges for someone trying to process that and the emotions that come with that particular type of death. The same with the relationship factor that can affect grief. So whether you are very close to the person who died or whether you weren't that close, it will bring very different challenges and feelings because it could be that you think, oh, I wasn't able to get to know that person in the way I wanted to. So you might be grieving that relationship as well as the death itself. And then if you knew the person really well, that will bring its own difficulties because that person would have played a significant role in your life. So, yeah, absolutely every bereavement will bring its own challenges and will bring its own feelings and thoughts that an individual will have to process. No one is harder or easier than another, but they will have to be understood and explored on an individual level so that you can understand the intricacies of that person's bereavement experience. Is there any form of bereavement that you wouldn't be able to support, Rachel? Um, in terms of what, sorry? Well, I'm just wondering, in terms of the provision, I suppose, I sometimes think of bereavement and grief. It's, it's an acknowledgement of the things that we we are no longer able to anticipate or have it in a way much as though it's about the loss of something and something that happened in the past it's about the loss of the future experiences as well Mm, yeah and that means that sometimes some of the bereavements we experience actually don't include a death Mm. but include a significant change Yeah, so what we quite often do is we talk about um, loss and we talk about bereavement and we talk about grief and we talk about bereavement. And grief, you can define as a very natural, normal response to having less or none of something that you had before. So what we work with is bereavement. So it would have to be that somebody had died Uh, you get things like living loss or what's called living loss, which is where maybe um, parents have separated and you no longer see one parent or, I know, having to move away and therefore you don't see 
family members anymore. So that's not something we'd be able to support with. Similarly, with um, pet bereavement, we wouldn't be able to support with. That's something the Blue Cross would be able to support with. But yeah, we work with the bereavement side of things where somebody has died and there isn't a particular bereavement that we would not work with or a particular circumstance or instance that we wouldn't work with. And in terms of and the support, I suppose part of the conversation we were having is sometimes about the timing of the experience and the fact that it's not always immediate. Mm. And I suppose it's a bit of a point of acknowledgement of that bereavement in a way, is it? Yeah, and I mean, like like the thought of people grieve in very different ways people grieve at very different paces as well so some of the people who call us for support it might be that the bereavement has just happened or it's only been a week since the person died and some people will contact us 40 50 years down the line and that's absolutely fine as well because not only will people grieve at different paces, but also the type of support you might need will be different at different stages in the grieving process. We might support someone very early on in their grief. They might then finish that support and come to us several years later when their grief is in a very different place and they're facing new challenges with that grief as well. Similarly with children and young people, if we meet them and we feel that actually they're not in that place where they feel they can talk about their grief yet or they just simply don't want to be there with us and they think, no, this isn't for me. What we might then do is we'll see them several years down the line when actually they do feel ready for that support now and they'll be coming at it from a very different place or a new life experience or a new life stage will reawaken that grief for them and they'll think, right, yeah, I'm back in that place and I need to get that support again. So, yeah, there's no ideal specific time to engage in support. It's more when it feels right and when it feels like something that you need and the type of support you need will shift and change over time as well. Because grief can have a real knock-on effect on lots of other aspects of your mental health but also other aspects of your life it can affect finances it can affect relationships it can affect physical health as well so the types of support that you need will also shift and change over time and that's not something that always one organization would be able to support with which is when you then get things like signposting or someone saying okay you've looked at this side of the bereavement maybe now you need to go to this organisation to look at this side of your mental health or this side of your relationships and getting support with that. So yeah, it is absolutely something that changes over time and there's no specific, yes, this is when I must access support, otherwise I've missed my gap. How would people contact with you, Rachel? How would they reach out to get that support? Um, so we have our helpline, which is open Monday to Friday, nine till five. You can call them on 0800 02 888 40. 
and a member of our support team will be able to take down your details and make that referral for you. But our helpline is also there for if you don't want to go straight in for a referral for support, they're also there just to have a chat and to be able to talk through any questions or concerns you might have regarding your bereavement as well. We also have live chat. So if you're someone who thinks talking to someone over the phone could not be any worse, you can go on to live chat on our website as well and you can type talk to a member of our support team that way. And we also have our support email, which is support at childbereavementuk.org. And you'd be able to jot your thoughts down in an email as well. So there are a few different ways of getting in touch with us. Um, and we also have various trainings and webinars, not just for professionals, but we also have one for parents and carers as well on what you might see in a bereaved child and how you can support them at home that we have on our website as well as an absolute wealth of information and guidance sheets on our website and also some very specific guidance on language that you can use to answer a child's questions or explaining difficult things like when someone has died by suicide or when someone's not expected to live. We have lots of guidance on specific language that you can use for children at different ages and stages to help give them that information that they need but in a way that they will understand and won't sound scary to them. In summary then, what do you feel it's important for people to know about, I suppose, things to keep in mind in terms of, of working through their own bereavement or the bere or a bereavement experience by a member of the family? If you had to give them some key takeaways from our conversation today, what would those be? I think... One of the main things would be if you are trying to support other people in their grief, it is almost imperative that you find support for yourself to be able to do that. Yeah, it's that old thing that they say on aeroplanes, isn't it, that you need to put your own mask on before you help somebody else. And so often we will have parents and carers say to us, oh, I just want to make sure that the kids are in support, then I'll focus on me. But it is absolutely essential if you are having to be su the support network for somebody else. It's so important that you get your own support. Um, and I think also when supporting somebody else with their bereavement, it is about approaching it from the individual perspective. So trying to understand that individual's experience, how they as an individual are feeling, whilst also fully understanding and accepting that their experience might be very different to your own and also speaking with them on how they particularly want to be supported what they feel would be the most helpful support for them as an individual and really being able to understand and accept that everybody grieves in a different way and that that is okay Rich, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think Rachel pretty much covered that. Mm -hmm. well, so, yeah, from Rich and I, thank you very much. Thank you very much. No, thank you. So if anybody would like to reach out, would like to know more or more support, then please check out our show notes and we'll have all the contact details there for you.
Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. No, thank you.